some people are beginning to talk a bit and some sunbathing. Please. Do I have to say more? But if some of you are new here, perhaps I do. Um, If you've come up with someone, come together with a friend or a partner, husband or a wife, it's only natural that you're going to want to sometimes want to share what happens here. But if you can, just look at the mind that wants to do that. The retreat will be over all too quickly and you'll have ample opportunity to talk. So for right now, not only for protecting your own practice, but also when you break the silence, which is quite fragile, you harm other people's practice as well. Perhaps you're not aware of that. Uh, Because all of us would like to talk, and perhaps all or many of us would like to sunbathe. Now, even when you sunbathe, you might feel you're only hurting yourself, but one person was doing it out front. And we're attempting to stay alert from moment to moment, and that changes the, the atmosphere in ways that make it more difficult for people to carry out their practice. We're attempting to work hard without it being grim or totally medicinal, but still there's some guidelines that are very necessary to follow because silence, whether you know it or not, is the most important. It's an envelope for us here. It's helping us tremendously. And it's quite fragile. like to continue where we left off continue um, talking a bit more about samadhi a bit more about the kalesas if we have time we'll begin to move into uh, the wisdom aspect of the practice And you now have heard a bit about the kalesas, these tendencies to grab at things, to crave things, or to be, to aggress, to attack things, or to be bewildered or confused, hesitant, unaware, lazy, dull. I enjoyed Corrado's talk last night, and I know many of you also did, because you, some of you have told me. But you know what? The Kalesas enjoyed the talk too. <laughs> they loved it. They loved hearing about themselves, all the different things they do, and how they mislead the mind and take it in directions that only produce suffering. In fact, they're right now, at this moment, just full of, full of smiles, just listening to me talk about them. In fact, we are them, right, in a sense. What is that? Is it, are we on fire? <laughs> Not only the Kalesas, but an actual fire? Oh, it's you. No. Oh. I think it's someone hearing me. Ah. Okay. 
Oh, is this? I see. Sorry. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but names will never harm me. You can get a PhD in Buddhism, and the Kalesas will snuggle right up in there and just love it. They're not afraid of being talked about or being called names, or being described or being analyzed. That doesn't frighten them. In fact, they love that kind of attention. They even go through more severe tests. When monks and nuns, when people who become monks and nuns ordain, the Kalesas don't ordain with them, even though they go into the ceremony. Not at all. They're happy to just travel along. They're just having a good time, smiling all the way, or frowning happily, as the case may be. In my own case, um, when I went to a particular monastery in Thailand, which I had known a lot about and had studied the teachings of for quite a few years, um, and this particular teaching, Ajahn Maha, teacher Ajahn Mahabua, uh, almost every other word has to do with the Kalesas, hand-to-hand combat with the Kalesas, and some of the more military uh, ways of talking about them that Corrado pointed at last night. And I knew what I was getting into. The entire environment was designed to flush out these tendencies and then to, as he would put it sometimes, cut their heads off. And so one meal a day, silence all the time, no telephones, you're out in in jungle. They call it a forest monastery, but that's not really the right term for it. Forests are places you can have picnics and <laughs> it's a jungle. You have snakes and all kinds of rats and scorpions. They should call it a jungle. But anyway, when I went uh, with some trepidation, the Kalesas went with me. Oh, great, Larry's going to Thailand to this forest monastery where they hate Kalesas. They cut their heads off. I haven't seen Thailand yet. Let's see how he messes this one up. Although the talking about them is essential, it's sort of making something explicit, perhaps putting the idea into our mind for the first time in a strong way that there are tendencies inside of us that are quite dangerous. They're in us, in our own heart. And uh, the cost is enormous and we may not even realize that it is coming from our own heart. Our worst problem is us. The liberation that's possible also comes from the same heart. And the mindfulness that we're developing and the wisdom, it's all coming from the same place. It's a big responsibility when you start to hear what the Buddha was really saying. He was was saying, it's totally our responsibility. If we want to be happy, it's in our hands. Because we're unhappy because of ourselves. And so what's necessary is 
something really direct. We've got to actually get to know these tendencies. We've got to understand uh, what they do. We have to learn how to investigate and see the consequences of living this way. And that requires first-hand knowledge. It's not something you can get from anyone, from a book or a teacher. I'd also like to add to, Corrado mentioned two styles of talking about the Kalesas. I think there's a third one. Maybe it's somewhat related to the second one. If you recall, the first one is more the ancient way of talking about the Kalesas in a very, uh, the metaphors are quite military. The sword of wisdom. And the Kalesas are seen as a very fierce enemy and that uh, heroic effort is needed. And then, a more modern, psychological, reasonable, toned-down one. And I think he made it pretty clear about the virtue of each and the possible danger of each. The third one, I think, originated in California, but now we have it. It's kind of massage the kalashas, love them, marry them, (laughs) cuddle them. Somehow very, very... Maybe there's some point to that as well. Um, what we were talking about was the role that samadhi plays in this epic drama where wisdom is pitted against the kalesas for the allegiance of the heart. That I think it's uh, accurate to look at it that way, or at least it's one way of looking at it, that um, there's contention going on as to who is in charge. Okay. And to review a bit, what was mentioned was that the development of the samadhi practice gives us a place of refuge, a place of seclusion in the heart, one that's desperately needed. It isn't final liberation, which is not to say it has no value. It has immense value, and some of that was hinted at the other evening. Perhaps for many of us, the first taste of the Dharma is the stillness that comes from a calm and concentrated mind. The first evidence or... uh, sign that we're really working with something that's worth working with, something quite precious, perhaps is most convincingly conveyed to us when we taste some of the joy of stillness, a certain level of stillness. And so, to even know that there's a way of sidestepping some of the traps, some of the problems, that come up when we get kidnapped by the Kalesas at times, taken away, (coughs) drawn into. To even know that is already wisdom. To know that there's a possibility, that there's another option, that we don't have to endlessly uh, be taken over on journeys which produce suffering, which produce anything but peace and fulfillment. 
Now, I would say in our own education, we don't know that. Although, instinctively, in ways which are not very efficient, we do it. When all else fails, we duck into a movie or uh, duck into a book or duck into the refrigerator. And in that moment, we're using, in a sense, part of the logic of samadhi to protect ourselves. We take our mind off what's bothering us and we exchange it for something else, which at least temporarily shields us from the pain of what's happening. But as we know, those forms of seclusion don't work very well. If they did, we would not be here. And so samadhi, developing the capacity to be steady, is like building a a strong house, a shelter, which we then have available to use. And if you recall what was suggested, is that as these tendencies of mind come up, whereas previously, very often what happens is we get taken over by them. It's as if the, the mind and the body are just an agent of the kalesas. The mind and body are given directions to go here, go there, do this and do that, often which are not beneficial because the heart doesn't really know what's good for it. It knows the main function of the citta is to know, but it knows incorrectly a lot. And it needs a dramatic and radical re-education. And that's what Dharma practice is. Now, the part of it that samadhi is, is realizing, if we use the breath as an example, that it's possible to use our effort in such a way as to save us from the possibilities of getting hurt. Because the heart is quite vulnerable and we often expose it to situations which harm it. Probably many or most of you know about effort, the importance of effort and right effort. In this case, just in a given moment, any time you use effort, let's say there's some tendency in the mind, any of the kalesas that come up. And in a sense, there's a choice. At that moment, we can get hooked into that and go on a trip. Or effort sidesteps it and instead goes to the breath because we're using the breath. It could be other things as well. So that we, the effort takes us to the object a benign object like the breathing rather than so many of our preoccupations which produce suffering. The effort sidesteps the particular hindrance that's flourishing at the time or that is uh, coming up to dominate the mind. It lands on the breath and it's mindfulness then, mindfulness in a sense closes the door on the kalesas. That is, the right effort gets us there to the breathing. Mindfulness closes the door on the kalesas and as the samadhi power starts to develop, there's a strength that keeps the door closed. It keeps the kalesas at a distance, at a safe distance. The stronger the samadhi, the more we have 
a safe and secluded place to drop into for the heart to heal itself, to refresh itself, to enliven itself, to nourish itself, so that it can be fit to investigate, to come out, because we're not trying to repress any of these destructive tendencies or to, den- or to deny them. One of the things we're doing, at least sometimes, in the way in which this is conceived, is we're avoiding, knowingly, getting lost in something, some one of these kilesas. It's not a blind kind of repression at all. We're intentionally and knowingly switching one preoccupation. It might be resentment. Switching that for the breath. Now, as our capacity to do that gets stronger and stronger, we have, as one Thai teacher put it at first, a bamboo house to come into to protect ourselves from the elements and from thieves, a place to rest. As the practice gets stronger, a wooden house, and then finally, a brick house. Now, the house is simply the degree of continuity and attentiveness. At first, we learn, we turn to the breath. We learn how to stick with it more and more. There's a continuity that is, uh, and this may be uh, a useful guideline for you, a very simple one, to check your own practice with. As the samadhi starts to develop, there are fewer gaps between breaths. That is, you notice more breaths continuously. And then you lose breaths, of course, but the gaps become smaller and fewer overall. And another sign is, when you lose the breathing and you're caught up in some other preoccupation, you notice it more quickly. So that whereas at first there are huge gaps, we're actually with other preoccupations more than we're with the breathing, more and more that gets cut down and we're able to be with breath after breath after breath. And at first, when we lose the breathing, and we're in one of these preoccupations, we can get lost for a long time. Oh, we suddenly wake up and realize, time to get back to the breath. It could be a while. That starts to diminish. It's as if an alarm goes off, and we know that we've gotten caught up in something, and we're able to remedy that and immediately ease back to the in-breath and the out-breath. Now, the seclusion that comes is talked about as seclusion from the hindrances, which were referred to just briefly the other night, and I think most of you know them. Tendencies in the mind towards uh, grasping, towards being angry or Uh, lazy or worried or to doubt things, to doubt the teaching, to teach error, to to doubt the Dharma, to doubt the Buddha, to doubt yourself. More and more, there's a direct relationship between the prevalence of these hindrances and the strength of samadhi. They're really kind of inversely, inversely related to each other. The stronger samadhi gets, the weaker the hindrances become. It's by, almost by definition. 
So that the first kind of seclusion that all of us have uh, isn't obvious, it's really an external seclusion. Let's say you go to a little hut in the woods, we think of that as secluded. But all that's happened really is we've taken our body and taken it away from other people. The mind can be as mad as ever. But it's one kind of seclusion. The next kind of seclusion is this, that's referred to. And of course, the deepest seclusion would be the complete purification of the heart, which is we call in this tradition nirvana, where the heart has completely cleansed itself of these kalesas. It's no longer a problem for itself or for anyone else. Now, that does not come about through just samadhi practice. What samadhi practice can do is it can give us the opportunity to strengthen the heart, for it to become steady, for it to develop a certain happiness, a buoyancy, a lightness, because as we're more able to aim our attention at the breath and then to rub up against each breath time and time again to stick with breathing, the heart becomes more joyful and happier and finally becomes one-pointed. All of the diverse energies that are so scattered converge around the breath and as a unification of the mind. And we can then rest for as long as we need the rest. We can then come out and begin the work of investigation. Okay, now, uh, even if your practice has not gotten to the point where you have, a, let's say, a brick house, nonetheless, I know that uh, many of us, perhaps all of us, have had our moments of stillness and how sometimes one or two breaths experienced consciously can be so refreshing it's almost like a full night's rest. And just imagine that the potential is there for that to become not only deeper but also something that is accessible and available, some place that you can go to at will. You can drop into this place. Now, in addition, when we exchange all the preoccupations that, are, that cause us trouble, when we exchange it for this one, in this case, the breath, not only are we short-circuiting and preventing the possibility of some suffering by easing out of it, that switch is very helpful for us, but also in the process, it's as if the kilesis to some degree atrophy because we're not practicing being miserable. We're not practicing being greedy or hateful or irritable or being lazy. We've given it a rest. And so to some degree, there's a weakening of that, but it's not an uprooting. So that one image that the ancients use is that samadhi is cutting the grass and vipassana is uprooting it. That is, wisdom is uprooting the grass. Now, as was mentioned a few moments ago, to begin to know that you have an option to not just blindly suffer, 
that you have the possibility to switch. It's like switching a channel. You can have all these other channels. Channel number four, suffering in the form of greed. Channel number five, suffering in the form of confusion. Channel no- Little by little, you realize there is another channel. Maybe it's cable, I'm not sure. But <laughs> and that one, we have the option of switching. But it only comes through the practice. You can listen to uh, profound and articulate talks and read books about the Kalesas until you're blue in the face. As I said, they love it. It's great. They're really happy. The only thing that makes a difference is when we turn inwards. We have to do this firsthand. Now, I myself, I think, incline more towards the militaristic metaphor. Sorry to disappoint you. Uh, and it took me a while. I used to really uh, be upset when I'd read these uh, descriptions about killing the Kalesas. And but that was to some degree because I had emotional resistance to looking at just the subtlety of how devastating ignorance is and a certain conceit that I wasn't so ignorant, that I wasn't really so deluded. And I don't mean these as ideologies or as nice poetic or philosophic statements. I mean, you have to really see it. You have to feel it. So we have this option to move away from that which is a problem. Now, I'm emphasizing this a lot because in the context of a retreat, I really hope you hear what I'm saying so you do it. See, teaching on retreats, it's not, we're not just uh, information conveyor belts or really even entertainers, although I know a little of that is helpful. It goes a long way, along with the food. But really, the main thing is to directly connect with you about the actual practice you're doing right here and now. And for you to begin to turn things around by understanding that you don't have to helplessly be carried along in some of these destructive tendencies. So that step number one is we need effort. The effort goes back to the breath. Then we need aim, just to aim at the breath. That's not a small thing. Right aim. You know, probably all of us in this room, we all know how to aim. You know, let's say it's meal time. We know how, somehow, I don't think anyone here, unless something extraordinary happens, misses. You kind of take the spoon, right, or the fork. You bring it up. It's got food. And somehow it always gets right into that hole. The mouth opens up. The food goes in. The chewing starts. We don't even think about it. We're great marksmen and women. All the time, zingo. Sometimes there's a little egg on our lip. But by and large, our aim is pretty good. Also, I mean, we don't put food in our ears or in our nose. And when we brush our teeth, we don't brush our hair with our toothbrush. We know exactly what to do. Our aim goes to where it should go over and over again. We've practiced that one because when we were children, we didn't do that. Do you remember? We don't remember, but our parents do. If there are any parents here, they can remind us. It's not that different. When it comes to the breath, our aim is not so hot. 
We don't get any little marksmen or markswomen badges. We're just about to aim at the breath and suddenly someone walks into the hall and, oh, who's that? They're in a little late. Oh, why don't they come on time? You know, sort of like you're the attendance taker. (laughs) And until everyone is here and you've checked them all out, the the meditation can't begin for that hour. (laughs) Or you're just about to go to the breath and the aim gets deflected and goes to your watch. And you take a look at, well, only 12 minutes left. I can hold out for that long. So for some reason, it's not that easy to aim our attention at the breath. So we're learning that breath, breath. And a lot of what comes up in the interviews, really, you're saying the same thing. And I don't know exactly what Corrado is saying, but probably we're saying the same thing. Only we're trying to say it in different ways so we don't bore you to death and bore ourselves to death. You're talking about all the different things that are telling you, don't aim at the breath. Go here, go there. And we're saying, just go back to the breath. Drop it. Go back to the breath, please. Okay. From the aim unfolds everything else. Now, as the samadhi gets stronger, wisdom comes in. Wisdom comes in just to, to, to know that you have this option. It's wise to step out from under problems that you don't need to uh, be hurt by them. Remember, it's not that we're denying them or repressing them, because what we're doing is we're preparing ourselves. Now, this is a little bit of an overly simplistic scheme, but roughly, this is the direction of this way of practicing. We're preparing the mind to be fit to then investigate into all those kalesas. We do want to meet them eyeball to eyeball. And whether your metaphors are warlike or massage them, whatever it is, we've got to get to know them directly. So the wisdom that enables us to make this move is helpful. We also will need wisdom on the other end. As the samadhi gets stronger, uh, and it's happening to a few of you already, you start, you may get visions all kinds of uh, 4th of July fireworks and exciting things, mostly worthless. <laughs> I mean, you know, they have some entertainment value. Uh, psychedelic, or if you're into colors and shapes. But there isn't a drop of wisdom in it, unless you put it there, by the way in which you understand it. So what tends to happen are some kind of dramatic things, some even psychic things, psychic powers can come out of a concentrated mind, dangerous because we can begin to get lost in some of the fruit of a concentrated mind. Perhaps the most dangerous is when you really do start to uh, taste some of this stillness. That this secluded place in the heart becomes real. And then when you come out, there's no way that you're interested in investigating. You know, just what? Look at impermanence and the fact that I'm going to die and the the body is aging. I think I'll go back into samadhi. I don't want to even hear about those things. But even if we're not doing samadhi, we don't often, this can be a problem. The person just has no energy to do any of the work of investigation. And so that's 
why at times at least teachers are needed or friends who have been walking the path a little bit longer. At that point, it's necessary to turn wisdom on this nice house that we've constructed and to understand its relative importance. So that wisdom will be used, that is, as we develop strength and brightness and clarity of mind to investigate, that will be used to investigate the Kalesas directly. But the very secure abode that we've created through our own hard work, it's kind of a... In one sitting a while back, I just broke up laughing when I realized that a lot of the samadhi practice is to get happy enough to be able to look at my suffering. That's what it seemed to me at any rate in one of the sittings. And then you get this nice little house that you've constructed and if you do such a good job of it that you start to only want to live inside, then what's needed is some wisdom and you begin to see that it's impermanent. That these states of very blissful stillness don't last which is not to say, don't do this practice. I'm trying to anticipate some of your kilesa-ridden minds, which are saying, oh, well, if it doesn't last, then I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Do it. It's just that it isn't a final resting place. And so, at that point, what's helpful is for wisdom to begin to examine the fruit of samadhi itself and to be able to see that this too arises and passes away and if grasped onto as self will produce suffering. It's not exempt from all of the, the lawfulness that we are, talk about in every other aspect of the practice. It's simply a very, very skillful and beautiful adjunct, necessary one, part of our practice and it has to be used in its right place. In the few minutes we have remaining, let me just anticipate a little bit. One way of for the for the Dharma to protect the heart is through the use of samadhi, and that's mainly what we've been developing in uh, so far during this retreat. It's been our primary work, not exclusively, as you know. And the next step is for a mind that has calmed down a bit, that's a bit more steadier, a little bit brighter, to then begin to examine the way things are. Every aspect of mind and body, to begin to look at the heart itself, to see any place in which it gets attached. And so the work of wisdom now that it's steady, that this mind of ours has been to some degree a little bit more calm and steady than, w- than when we came here, to then take that mind, and in a nutshell, to investigate ways in which the chitta or the heart gets attached to things. And only that which mindfulness contemplates, which looks at, can wisdom understand. And only that which we understand can we let go of. And so the investigation becomes 
every aspect of the way in which the five khandhas, if you like, the mind and the body, just how they're appropriated by the heart as being I or mine, with the help of the kilesas. Actually, the kilesas really, it's very hard to separate. The kilesas and this uh, self-cherishing or egocentric way of living, really the same thing. This preoccupation with self come out of this, the energy of the kilesas, and they also are an expression. Not only are they an expression of it, they also reinforce it. And one of the main pieces of misinformation that the kilesas give us, a lot of it, of course, has to do with the third one, delusion, is we are told that we are our body, that this body is mine, and so forth. It doesn't end there, as you know. Most anything, I'll scratch that out, anything can be claimed as being I or mine. And at that point, uh, we're at the the critical locus of bondage and freedom in the Buddhist teaching. And so, a mind that's been to some degree prepared for investigation now uh, begins to look as clearly as it can over and over and over again. And its job is to convince the heart that it's much better off following wisdom than the Kalesas. To show the heart through reason, through just the uh, deepening of clarity, the repeated seeing into the way things are, until the heart itself is so impressed with wisdom that it shifts and goes in a direction that's beneficial to itself, rather than as it has been going in directions that are not fruitful and then always wondering why. And so it's a radical turning around using the powers of investigation to let go. The letting go comes from the understanding repeated and with increasing depth. The understanding comes from the seeing. The mindfulness endlessly polished, refined, deepened, steadied. And that's our laboring in the vineyards. That's what we're doing. Let me read to you something about before I read this. In the past, uh, I know I had very negative reactions for a number of years when I was reading is about this kilesa idea and some of the rhetoric used to convey it. And many people uh, come away from retreats like this with a somewhat wrong idea about it, as I mentioned. Feeling bad about themselves. Oh, I didn't know I was so such a greedy person. Remember, the emphasis is on the suffering that these bring. When uh, I was at this monastery with um, Ajahn Mahabhul in Thailand, one day there was, I don't know exactly what happened, but the monk did something that was uh, pretty off. 
And Mahabhuva just happened to be lurking. One of the ways in which he teaches is you never know where he is. Suddenly, there he is. They, they don't have very few formal interviews because they're all living together. And he just turns up and he can, sees everything, sees a lot, and corrects you right on the spot if it's off. At any rate, he really laced into this monk fiercely. And I was just there a few days. And he looked over and he, it was in Thai, of course. And uh, the monk who was translating for me uh, and anyway, Mahabhuva then took a glance at me and was a little concerned. And so then he told the translator, he said, make sure he understands that what I was attacking were the Kalesas and not this person. So if you understand, from that point of view, Mahabhuva was, his, was a friend. That's a good friend, somebody who's willing to go to the trouble of pointing out that you're an egomaniac. <laughs> anyway, here's a very eloquent way of the way it was put by the 13th Dalai Lama. That's the Dalai Lama who preceded the present one. The Bodhisattva is like the mightiest of warriors, but his enemies are not common foes of flesh and bone. His fight, or her fight, is with the inner delusions, the afflictions of self-cherishing and ego-grasping, those most terrible of demons that catch living beings in the snare of confusion and cause them forever to wander in pain, frustration, and sorrow. His mission is to harm ignorance and delusion, never living beings. These he looks upon with kindness, patience, and empathy, cherishing them like a mother cherishes her only child. He is the real hero, calmly facing any hardship in order to bring peace, happiness, and liberation to the world. Now, this is phrased about a bodhisattva saving others. Please understand that what we're doing is saving ourselves, so we, it fits us. Everything that you just heard is about our relationship to ourselves. And that's, I think, what we've been uh, leading up to, that the whole development of the talks and the practice has a lot to do with that. Okay.